you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Our passage will begin at verse 26 this morning. As we continue working our way through Luke's gospel, it should be obvious by now that there are several key themes that keep showing up over and over again. And we might be tempted to read quickly through those passages that seem familiar to us, that seem to echo things that we have already seen so far in the Gospel of Luke. But that's not what Luke wants us to do. Uh, remember that there are years upon years of Jesus' life that they have distilled down to just a few chapters. So every single thing that they put in here is important in their mind for us to see, for us to meditate on, for us to consider, even when they're showing us the same things about Jesus and about ourselves, about God's plans and purposes for us. So as we think about uh, seeing these repeated themes, we should think about uh, perhaps a, uh, a newly engaged girl who admires the diamond that her fiancé gave her. She notices when she first puts it on and she holds it up to the light how it sparkles and gleams as she, as she looks at it one way. But then as the days go on, as the week goes on, as she continues to think about her impending marriage, uh, she might, she might begin to hold it this way and look at it or to, to turn it sideways or perhaps even to take it off and to, to spin it in her fingers. And she notices how every side is beautiful. Every side is glorious. Every side refracts the light in new and in, in wondrous ways. And each time she knows, she is looking at the same diamond that represents the love and the promise of her fiancé. Well, that's kind of how Luke wants us to look at Christ. He wants us to see him from different angles, in different ways, different perspectives, but it's always the same Christ. And we will see that same glory reflected and refracted in different ways. And so he's not simply presenting to us the the historical realities of the life of Christ, although he is doing that. But he wants to repeatedly show Christ's willingness to save and his power to save and how we should respond to that. Luke is constantly showing us Jesus' compassion towards sinners and how that should affect our lives and our faith in Him. And that's what we see this morning. And so as we seek to look to this, we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 29 today, but I'm only going to read the the first part, and we will continue to unpack it. And I want us to bask in the glory of Christ, that we might come to an ever-deepening love and appreciation for His work. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 26. Then they, that is Jesus and the disciples, then they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. This is the word of God. As this story unfolds, we first see the man in need. We first see the man in need, and we need to note, first of all, the most obvious thing about him, and that is he is an enslaved man. 
He is an enslaved man. Luke says this man of the Gerizines was a man who had demons. In fact, Jesus, when he asked his name, his response is legion because he had many demons. Now, such a response, even just from these verses, but I mean, from, from these two things, but not only the whole passage will likely uh, indicate lots of things to us. But first of all, what we see is that at this point, this man is little more than a mouthpiece for these demons. Um, he, he's really not only possessed by them, but his whole description of who he is is bound up with this demonic influence. Jesus is not asking the demon his name, as we'll see later. He's asking the man his name. But all he can say is, I have many demons. Furthermore, legion is in fact a military term that indicates a unit of soldiers made up of thousands. So how many demons are there? Well, there's a sense in which we could easily take this literally, but Luke, I think, wants us to see the number is not so important as the reality of the force and concentration in dwelling this man's life through this demonic presence. Moreover, the fact that he employs this term of militarism shows this is not just two people having an argument. This is all-out war. War against the Son of God and His plans as the Messiah. And again, all of this may raise many questions in our mind about demons, about demon possession. And in that regard, I love the story of Gordon Reed that I read, a Presbyterian pastor of a previous generation. It is said that he was once preaching through the Gospel of Mark and he came to a passage on demon possession. And there he told his congregation this, I don't know much about demon possession, but I've read a lot of books about uh, about people on demon possession. And they don't know much about demon possession either. Uh, what he meant is this, uh, is very much true today as well. There are lo- many questions we have about demons. There are many people that purport to know them, but so very often uh, all they are talking about is supposed experiences and ideas largely drawn beyond the biblical data and so present to us a false view of the realities of demonic activity. The Bible is simply not that interested in giving us a full theology of demons. They give us what we need to know and no more. And so as we begin, what we want to do is in some sense pause and say, here are the basics of what we should understand and believe about demons, not simply to understand this passage, but understand uh, their work in the world today. And even as I do that, I want to just uh, assuage some of your fears by letting you know this first point will be more than half the length of the full sermon. So when we start point two, and if you're one who likes to look at the clock, you don't need to panic, okay? We're going to be camped out here for a few minutes with points two and three going a little bit more quickly. So what do we need to see about what the Bible says? First of all, we must understand that the demonic is real that the demonic is real. The Bible is clear that the devil and his demons are not simply metaphors for evil. They are real. They were angelic beings created for God's glory who rebelled against him and have been cursed and condemned and now exist to thwart God's plans and purposes. Demons have been around since the Garden of Eden when Satan himself took the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve and they have been uh, active ever since. Demonic possession, however, when we look at the totality of the scripture's teaching, although we can't be positively certain, seems to be something new. You never see anywhere in the Old Testament, anywhere of anyone being talked about being possessed by a demon the way you do, especially in the Gospels and the book of Acts. It's not to say it didn't happen, but we're never told about it. We have no record of it. 
This has actually caused uh, one preacher, Charles Spurgeon, to believe that Jesus, the one who, uh, or rather, uh, not Jesus, but rather Satan, uh, the one who loves to imitate in false and evil ways the work of God, that he in fact observed the incarnation, the enfleshing of the divine with humanity, and therefore sought to parry it, to mock it, to emulate it through demonic possession. It's good speculation, but it's still speculation we can't know for sure. Either way, the point is, demonic activity is meant to detract from God's glory, to lessen the worship and the honor that he deserves. Demonic activity is real. The second thing we need to understand is that demonic affliction is real, but not the cause of all affliction. Demonic affliction is real, but not the cause of all affliction. You can read several books. You can hear several people talk or go online and watch videos at YouTube. And they will say that they believe the biblical writers were limited in their worldview and so misunderstood what was going on around them. They would say, well, now we have science and we have advanced medicine. And what we know is that so many people suffer from mental illness. And what they identify as demons was really just modern day mental illness. As Tim Keller points out, that whole way of thinking completely falls apart when you read a passage like Matthew 4.24. What does that say, you wonder? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll read it to you. The apostle says that the people brought to Jesus all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. What, What is the point? The point is the ancient peoples were smart enough to discern what was physical, what was mental, and what was spiritual when it came to afflictions. They had no problem calling somebody crazy and somebody else demon possessed. In fact, there's a word for crazy in the New Testament. It literally means touched by the moon. And this is why we will often say at full moon, boy, the crazies are coming out tonight, right? Uh, they, they have that mindset. They understand this is a problem mentally and this is a problem spiritually. What that means is Jesus and the apostles did not believe in demon possession out of ignorance, but out of conviction. Out of conviction. This is reality for them. Likewise today, we should ne- neither rule out the possibility of demonic activity nor see it in everything. So, so, so sometimes we have the opposite view, don't we? We have people who want to desperately say demon activity is real, and so there's no such thing as mental illness. It's just demons. What we have to say is no, because even Jesus and the apostles didn't see that. Okay, so it exists, but it's not. Tota- it's not the totality of all afflictions and evils in the world. Third and final, we need to understand that demonic activity comes because of sin. Demonic activity comes because of sin. Here's the thing. Sin never appear, never is what it appears to be. Sin never is what it appears to be. Just uh, the other week, I was out with some of my kids getting some ice cream. And, uh, of course, Melinda doesn't know this because she was out of town, but so, so now she knows. Uh, <laughs> we stopped to get ice cream, and I saw pink lemonade sherbet or sorbet for you cultured people out there. And I love anything lemon. Okay, I don't care if it's a pie, if it's a cake, but especially ice cream, that super tart, oh, I love that. And I thought, that's what I want, the pink lemonade. So I get this thing, and we pay, and we're in the car driving home, and I'm eating this thing, and it, I'm eating it, I'm eating it, and I keep thinking in the back of my mind, I'm talking to the kids, this is going to start tasting good at some point. This is going to start tasting good at some point. And finally, I say, why am I eating this garbage? This does not taste like anything, lemon, this tastes like medicine. 
And so I just put the thing on. The, I thought, I'm done with this thing, you know. And thankfully, uh, my palate was cleansed by some chocolate and whatever, whatever the other kids were sharing with me. But the point is, I this thing looked so wonderful. It looked great. And it turned out to be the most disgusting thing I'd ever had practically in my life. Sin's the same way. Sin is the exact same way. Did not, did not Satan in the garden make the fruit look completely appetizing? I mean, to the point that they thought we must have this thing. It, it will make us wise. It looks good to the eyes. It is aesthetically pleasing. It's the most beautiful piece of fruit we've ever seen. And it's good for us to eat and be nourished by. We, we must have this thing. And yet God had said, no, despite its appearance, it will result in death. Nevertheless, they ate. Sin always looks like that. It is always baited in such a way that we think this is good for us. This is good for me. I want this. I should have it. But the moment we bite into it, it sets our teeth on edge. There's a stinger in the tail. It sours our stomach. It corrupts our soul. And the point I'm getting at is this. Satan just doesn't come on somebody and attack them for, for no reason. You have somebody who is already moving in the direction of loving Satan and wanting his influence in their life. It could just be, it could just start with a normal sin. And their heart is hardened after time. And so they continue to go after sin and go after sin and go after sin and go after sin and actively rebelling against God, denying his existence, perhaps engaging in the worship of a false god. It's when, it's when humanity decides to not just kind of live a normal sinful life, but to so relish in it that they have zero interest in God, the one true God, that they open themselves up for demonic activity. So there is a real sense in which what we see in this passage is not just an innocent man who has been waylaid by the forces of evil, but a man who has in some way opened himself up for this to happen and therefore should all the more be pitied. So this is how we understand this man to be an enslaved man. But then secondly, we also see he's an exposed man. He's an exposed man. Luke says that this man was a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Now in one obvious sense, the man is exposed because he has no clothes on. But that's... Physical nakedness was a sign of something else. It showed that he lacked any basic decency. I mean, this was long before streaking at sporting events became popular and even culturally acceptable. Okay, uh, As we saw a few weeks ago about the woman who simply let down her hair and was thought to be uh, a, a woman of the night with a terrible reputation. Okay, uh, So also to strip naked and run around without care would have been seen as, as the ultimate in antisocial behavior. No decency evidence that he lacked any moral compass. In other words, he is exposed in the sinfulness of his heart. That's what we are to understand about that. And that is especially true, all the more true when we consider thirdly that this man is an estranged man. He is an estranged man. Notice again that this was a man from the city who for a long time had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Furthermore, we read later that he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But eventually, presumably as more and more demons took up residence, he began to be able to break the bonds and be driven out into the desert. I don't think it's unintentional that Luke tells us this was a man from the city. This is an urbanite. Uh, this is not some guy who is a farmer living out in the fields. This man dwells in the city. 
And yet he has turned his back on the city. He has come to make his home among the tombs, running out into the wilderness naked to be away from people. Now, again, even today, someone who wants to go live in a graveyard, we we think they've been touched by the moon, right? Uh, They've got something wrong with them. That's not normal. I mean, even in our culture, death is something to be feared. It's not something to be cherished. If somebody uh, comes in um, dressed a certain way in a certain apparel with uh, images of death tattooed on their body, we just think something's off with them. That's more than an artistic statement about uh, their values, uh, or, or rather about what they think is, is beautiful or kind. To, to worship and be consumed with death is something's wrong there. But but more than that, understand, he's chosen to associate with death above the living. He He's not just said, well, I have no moral cares and strip naked and walk in the streets. No, he said, I have no moral cares. And then he has fled the influence of the living. We don't know if this man had family. He certainly would have had friends. But now he has left all of that behind and says, I would rather dwell in this place of the undead, in this graveyard, among the tombs. And, and for the Jews, this would have been considered not just odd, but this would have been considered sinful because it was a place of uncleanness. You did not hang out among dead bodies. Take everything together and what you see is a man here who has lost his humanity. A man who was no longer really a man. And the picture that we have here is terrible. We would hate to be in that place living like this man. But here's the rub. The Bible says that apart from Christ... This is how all of us are in our sins. Oh, we may not be possessed by a legion of demons running around naked, busting out chains, living in a graveyard away from society, but we are nevertheless possessed, even enslaved by our sin. It is our master. And even may make us powerful for a while, but ultimately it leads to destructive behavior, destructive things to ourselves and to those around us. It leaves us spiritually dead, unable to rightly relate to God or to anyone else around us. And in the end, we are left like this man, naked, exposed before God, having to give an account for our idolatry and sinful actions. That's the dilemma of this man in need. The question is, what can be done for him? What can be done for us? If we are Christians, we are God's people, then we know something has already been done for us. We have met the Savior from God. And that is what, that is who this man will meet as well. This is the second thing that we want to see, the Savior from God. We are told that they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. He would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked the man, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Now as we think about the picture of Jesus in these verses, we need to see first of all that he is a caring Savior. That he is a caring Savior. Admittedly, Luke is not super clear here unless you read really close the chronology of what is taking place. 
So let's walk through it. In verses 26 and 27, we see Jesus in the boat coming up on the shore, getting out of the boat. And almost immediately we are told this man is running up to Jesus. Jesus is not like wandering around for, for, for hours or days or weeks. Uh, he's barely on shore and this man comes charging out to him. In verse 28, he cries out to him, what do you have to do with me? And in verse 29, we're told why he cried out in the first place. In other words, Luke is stepping back and telling us what happened between Jesus getting on the boat and the man crying out to him, namely that Jesus started to command the demon to come out of him. So this man comes hurtling himself towards Jesus. Jesus, in his wisdom, says, okay, uh, naked guy running from tombs towards me probably has a demon. And he starts to command the demon to come out. And then the man yells at him. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. And here's the key. It is the man that calls out, not the demon. And this is what caused Jesus to slow down. Rather than just rip the demon from this man, he stops. And he begins to show care for the individual. And he asks him, what is your name? And again, he's not, he's not asking the demon its name. You have this idea sometimes in sermons and in books that says, well, Jesus has to know the name of the demon so he has authority over it. I'm sorry, I thought he was God in the flesh with authority over all things. That's a pagan idea, Right? And, 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 and so that's an importation into the biblical passage. We see demon possession after demon possession after demon possession. And Jesus just says, out, and never asking the name. So, so, so don't be beguiled by that kind of talk. He is asking the man's name. Why? Because the man is clearly afraid of Jesus. My assumption is he has so lived with this demonic possession that he has literally begun to communicate with the demons. And they have told him, you see that man getting out of the boat? He is here to destroy you. He is here to afflict you. He is here to harm you. Go and stop him. And this man has, has in a panic and frightful rage, he has ran up to him and said, why are you here? What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? But then notice, but notice he begins almost to take a step back and pleads, don't torment me. Don't torment me. The man is clearly afraid of Jesus because the demons are clearly afraid of Jesus. The demons know their fate. James says that demons believe in God. They know he is one, that he is the one true God. And what does that lead them to do? James says it leads them to shudder. To, to shudder. But why? Because they know their end. They know that they will not be allowed to rebel forever. They know that one day they will be thrown into the everlasting abyss away from God. We will see them plead with Jesus not to give them that in a minute. But I think that what Jesus sees here is this man who has so lost himself in the demons, he cannot even speak his own name. He cannot even speak his own name. And Jesus wants to draw him back to reality. He wants this man to begin to understand that he is no threat to him, only to the demons. He wants the man to begin to see that he is a savior who can heal. And eventually, that talking comes to an end, though, and the demons are dealt with. And here we see the authoritative savior. The authoritative savior. Back to verse 30. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. Luke explains, for many demons had entered into him. And they, now the demons are talking, they begged him, Jesus, not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, 
Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. It's amazing that Jesus is barely off the boat and the man is there sensing his presence and the doom that is coming. And if you ever wonder about the truthfulness of biblical accounts, in fact, you even see this kind of thing today. Often it's in the context of third world missions. Um, but one of the most interesting ones is a man by the name of O. Palmer Robertson. And, and just to, you know, sometimes, you know those people that are telling a story and you're pretty sure it's a story? I mean, just by their their larger belief system and the things that they're saying, you're just thinking, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that this is really accurate. This is not the most reliable witness. We need to understand, oh, Palmer Robertson, um, he's not kind of this wild, charismatic guy. You know, uh, he's not got a television show in a large church. This guy is a Presbyterian, conservative uh, seminary professor. Okay, so this is not somebody that I mean, I love Presbyterians, but, uh, you know, the, the, the old joke is that as Baptists, when the pastor tells a joke, we don't we don't laugh. We just write ha ha on a piece of paper. You know, uh, the Presbyterians don't even do that. Okay, I mean, it's about reserved, conserved, you know, so this guy is not like, you know, uh, flights of fancy wild tales kind of a guy. And yet when he was beginning his term of service as the president of the African Bible Colleges of Moali and Uganda, he came with no fanfare. He came with no announcements. There was not an ad in the paper with his name. There, there was no one there saying, this is the man who is coming to be the president of the Christian colleges. Nothing. But within days of him arriving, this man came right up to him and began threatening him. He began to, to, to yell at him and to confront him. And it was later told to him that this man had a reputation for being in communion with evil spirits. He was often hired to put curses on people and, and initiate spells with them. And he got in his face yelling, What are you doing here, man of God? And he proceeded to grab a metal bar and hold it in his teeth and began to, to bend it down as a U-shape, trying to intimidate Palmer and get him to leave. Now what had happened? Simply this, the demon recognized the presence of God in Palmer's life. He recognized this is a man of God and it scared him because he knew who was with him. Now just as an aside, we have to say, how intimate is your walk with Christ? How much are you seeking to abide with him? If you walked into a room full of demon-possessed people, would they shrink back in fear because they knew the presence of God is with you? That being said, what happened to Palmer Robertson is all the more so for Jesus because he's not just a man of God. He is the son of the Most High God. The demons not only know what is coming to them, the abyss, they also know who can send them there, the man standing in front of him, Jesus. They recognize his sovereign authority over them. But it's not yet their time for the abyss. So when they beg to be put into the swine, Jesus allows it. Mark tells us, that in chapter 5, same incident, uh, that it was over 2,000 pigs that were killed that day. Suddenly the reality of the legion begins to become more clear, doesn't it? Sadly enough, though, this is perhaps the most controversial part of the passage. The fact that Jesus allows the slaughter of the pigs. Isn't that amazing? There's a famous passage in a book by the philosopher Bertrand Russell when he talks about why he's not a Christian. And this is one of the areas that he points to. And he says, in this story we see the terribly flawed moral character of Jesus who allows these innocent pigs to be slaughtered. What? They are swine! They are pigs! We're not talking about Wilbur from Charlotte's Web here! They're just pigs! 
eventually someone's going to cut them up and fry them for bacon and pork chops. What difference does it make whether the demons killed them or not? Some of you may be thinking, though, well, why did he let that happen? All right, the truth is we don't know, but here's a couple of reasons. Take your pick. First of all, letting them go into the pigs is much better than letting them go back into people and tormenting the area. Beyond that, though, according to the Mosaic Law, swine were considered unclean, a seemingly appropriate place for the demons. Still yet, and here's what I think perhaps may be happening, notice that these are not wild swine. They are grazing. We will see in a minute there are people there herding them. Now, this is a Jewish area. If the Jews are there herding these swine, raising them, even if it's to sell to the Gentiles for bacon, it violates the law of God. These people are openly, actively earning their wages by sinful rebellion against God's law, and therefore their destruction would have been a fitting punishment. I think that's likely the case. But if none of those things suit your fancy, then here's what you should go with. Ultimately, the one who is standing there that allows the demons to enter the swine is the one who created the swine. He is the creator of all things, and therefore he can do whatever he wants with those swine. He has authority over them. But that being said, don't miss the point. It's not about the pigs. It's about the demons and the authority that Jesus has over them. You watch all kinds of television and read books, and you get this, this idea that somehow the demons are essentially all-powerful. Do not buy that lie, dear brother and sister. There is a temptation even for Christians to have an unhealthy fear of the demonic. But look at what Jesus does here. The demons are terrified of him. But where are we at? We're only in chapter 8. Luke has 24 chapters. And when you start hitting 21, 22, 23, we see something amazing happen. It's called the cross. And there, Jesus willingly dies to secure not just our salvation, though he did that. Not just our eternal life with God, though he did that. But he also died and was raised back to life to secure our victory over sin and death and the demonic forces. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that when he was raised back to life, he not only disarmed the rulers of power, he put them to shame. He's essentially saying, hey, you got something better than that? Is that your best shot? Because it wasn't good enough. You didn't stop me. And now you will be forever cast into the abyss. If you ever had any doubts that maybe, maybe we beat God, maybe we triumphed over his Messiah, think again, because I am the Lord of glory. And here is the thing. Jesus says that we are united with him in his death and his resurrection. Paul says when we put our faith in Jesus, we are united with him. We are raised with him. That means Christ's victory is our victory. If you are at all a real Christian, then the demons will be afraid of you because they are afraid of Christ and his spirit indwells you. You can never be the possession of a demon because you are a possession of Christ. He has sealed you as his by the coming of the Holy Spirit. So do not ever, ever believe that you should be fearful of demons. Does that mean they can't cause you harm? No, it doesn't mean that. There's this great story from, from John MacArthur. And again, not the kind of guy that's like, you know, telling weird things. Okay, pretty conservative. Probably more conservative than I am. And that's pretty hard in some, in some ways. And he talks about a demon-possessed person, a lady coming into his house or into his office and begin uh, not only screaming at him, yelling at him, but picking up chairs and throwing them across the desk at him. What does he do? Does he stand there like Superman and says, bring it? No, he knows he's mortal. He hides under the desk. 
But what does he do? He proclaims the gospel of Christ. And the woman gets saved and the demons flee. Here's the reality. Yeah, a demon might kill us, but it doesn't matter because they can't take our soul. Jesus himself said, don't fear those that can destroy the body. Fear him, the father who can destroy body and soul in hell. If we are God's people, we have done that. Therefore, the worst anybody can do is kill us and send us more quickly to Jesus. Right? We say, I, I, I don't know that I want that. But Jesus holds that out as the encouragement. Go and do hard things. Go and live for me. Don't worry about sinners. Don't worry about demons. Don't worry about worldly authorities because the worst they can do is send you to me more quickly. Don't fear the demonic because they are powerless against us. They are powerless against Christ. He is a caring Savior. He is an authoritative Savior. And he is a healing Savior. Notice what happens in verse 34. When the herdsmen, that is those taking care of the pigs, saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. When people went out to see what had happened, and they, had, they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Notice the reversal that was already taking place to this man. Under the possession of the legion, his whole personality had been swallowed up in the demonic. He was a shade of his former self, without self-control, without self-worth, without self-dignity. Now Jesus has come and he's freed him from all of that. And what is he doing? He is sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. This is the power of Christ over all our sins. When we come to faith in him, he pours out his life-giving spirit into our hearts. And in a real way, we start to become authentically human. We start to become what we were designed to be, what we were supposed to live as in the garden with God. He begins to bring us back to that reality. We become more of what God created us to be as he cleanses us from the guilt of our sin and the power of sin. And he gives us a spirit, Paul says, of self-control and of godliness. He frees us to joyfully live under his lordship, learning God's ways. Isn't that what he is doing? He's at the feet of the Savior. And so what we see is that Jesus is the Savior that all of us need, not just this man, but all of us. And life only gets better under his healing presence. So we've seen the man in need. We've seen the Savior from God. Now let's see, finally, the response to Jesus. What happens? How do people take what has happened? How do they understand it? What do they do? The response to Jesus. Well, Luke shows us two responses. First, where we see those who had the response of fear. The response of fear. Verse 34 again. When the herdsmen saw what has happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerizines asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. This is the saddest thing, the saddest part of this whole account. That they've seen the power of Christ. They've seen what he can do. And rather than say, we need that for ourselves, they say, we don't want any part of that. That is beyond anything we want to deal with because that scares us. That scares us. In the immediate, it could be that they were afraid of losing their living and their livelihood. Think about those two herdsmen. Maybe two, could have been more than that. There's at least two. And they lost all of those swine. And they think, you know what? If that's the power of Jesus to make me jobless, then I don't want him around. 
If his healing comes at that kind of a cost, then I don't want to have anything to do with him. Or maybe it's simply the fact that they they know that they're sinful because they have this business and this association with the swine that are contrary to God's laws. And so maybe they just say, if you're going to do that to the demons, we know we're sinful and we don't want you here. At the end, we don't know why they were so afraid that they ultimately told Jesus to go away rather than accept him. But what we can see already is the parable of the soils coming to fruition. There will be some who hear the word and embrace it. And there will be some who turn away. They have the Son of God in their midst, but they miss it. And the least we can say is that they miss it because their hearts are too attached to the things of this world. They don't receive the healing that he can bring. But then we see the response of faith. The response of faith. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Isn't that an amazing contrast? At the beginning, he was begging Jesus to stay away from him. Now, he's begging Jesus to not leave him. The man wants to be with Jesus. And surely that's the right response to everybody who has experienced the healing of the Savior, isn't it? To want to be with Jesus forever. Just yesterday, I was having a conversation with my kids in the car, not during the ice cream, but separately. And we were talking about heaven and eternal things. And I was trying to explain to him, here's the reality, is that if it doesn't matter all of the, the wonderful things that we are promised about heaven, if we get there and Jesus isn't there, we should not want to be there. You, you, you've got no pain, you've got no suffering, you've got no sin, you've got seen uh, departed loved ones and friends, but that's not what makes heaven heaven. That's not what makes our hearts long for it or should. It's not what should make it so sweet to us. It should be the reality that Jesus is going to be there. That we can physically embrace Him. We can, we can be down like the woman kissing His feet. We can be like this man listening to His words. We can give Him the worship and the homage that is due His name. We can look into the glorious face of our Savior. That's what makes heaven, heaven. And this man knows it. He has been healed and all he wants to do is sit at the feet of Jesus and learn and listen and then go with him when he leaves. He begs him, let me go with you. Let me be one, a disciple who goes. Ponder what that says about how we should be living our daily lives today. If If you do anything else, think about the transformation this man has gone through the response of his life and what that says about how we should respond to having experienced the grace of the gospel. But here's the thing. The man wants to go with Jesus, but Jesus wants something else for him. He says the man should stay and bear witness to what God has done for him. And what does he do? Exactly what Jesus asked. Verse 39. Luke says he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Though Jesus was asked to leave, the city is never allowed to forget what happened there. Day by day, there is this man. The man once feared and despised, now healed and preaching. Every time he walks down the street, every time he tells his story, there is a reminder of the compassion and the power of Christ who drove out the demons and brought sanity to this man who was once thought to be lost forever. And here in this one simple verse, we have an example to follow and a truth that must be understood. 
God has different assignments for his disciples. Jesus called the twelve to himself to travel with him, to go with him, but he tells this man to stay. And the same is true today. Some are called to go to other countries, to other cultures, and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, and some are called to stay. But do not miss this. The call to stay was no less a call to ministry. The call to stay was no less a calling than the call for the twelve to go. Every believer has the same calling, namely to tell what the Lord has done for them. Every calling, or the calling of every Christian is to proclaim Christ. The calling of every disciple is to make disciples. So if you are here this morning and you claim the name of Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and you have no desire to share, you make no plans to share, one of two things is wrong with you. Either you are far from Jesus, and your relationship has so weakened, has become so paltry, has grown so cold and stale that you have forgotten the enormity of the saving grace He has brought to your life, the healing that has happened when He took you out of the domain of darkness and brought you into His beloved kingdom. Or secondly, you don't really know Him at all. There's no drive to talk about Jesus because you've never really experienced the healing of Jesus. So very often the call to Christ may feel like a guilt trip or a never-ending drumbeat. Here we go again. Here we go again. It's all about evangelism and sharing Christ. But here's the thing. The reason why sharing Christ in the gospel is so foundational to the ministries of this church and to the ministry of our individual lives is because He is our only hope. There is no other. There is no other. If they do not hear, they cannot believe. And if they do not believe, they will perish forever justly for their sins. Outwardly, the man in the passage looks worse than everyone we've probably ever met put together. But spiritually, apart from Christ, there's very little difference to everyone that we've ever met. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. And for every crowd that will reject that message, there will always be a man. For every group that mocks and rejects him, there will always be one who hears and believes and is changed. Jesus is our only hope for seeing our lives changed. And he is the only hope for seeing anyone's life changed. That's why we tell of his name. That's why we tell what he has done for us, that we might be his ambassadors. We might be the mouthpiece not for the demons, but for Christ himself. That healing might come to the nation's and to our neighbors. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege, not only of experiencing the salvation of Christ, but being able to share that with those that have never heard, for those that have heard countless times, but have never believed. Father, we pray that you would cause us to think about the intimacy of our relationship with Christ, how closely we are abiding in him as he commands us to do, as he invites us to do as he gives us the privilege to do. For Father, we have been told that if we abide in him, if his word abides in us, then we will bear good and plentiful fruit. That God, the evidence of that abiding fellowship will be evident in how we live our lives in the ministry that we perform. God, none of us should ever be driven by guilt to proclaim the only hope for humanity, the name of your Son, 
So God, I pray that it would not be guilt that drives us, but love and joy and thankfulness as we consider our own state before you in the the visible terribleness of this man's condition. God, help us to see that apart from your grace, we were no better off. For we were going to the same hell that he was. But God, you saved us. You freed us. You gave us new life through your son. God, may that gospel thought move us with joy and affection. Not only to to come closer in our intimacy with you, but in our intimacy and fellowship with one another and in our proclamation of the name, that only name that brings healing hope to the nations. It's in that name, the name above all names, the name of your son, the son of the most high God, Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.